We've arrived now in the Gospel of John. We will be continuing with chapter 18. And taking from where we've closed chapter 18, we will now continue through the process, through the uh, narrative as it is in regards to the master and his obedience unto death. Pastor Jason ended at chapter verses 12, but we will start from verse 12 and end at verse 27. Uh, I just want to make a note in case you are reading uh, from a different uh, iteration. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, there will be some words that are similar, um, but I'll make more note once we're done here. Once again, here is the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 12, and we will end at verse 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Anas, for he was the father, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servant and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where are where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? I ask those who have heard me, who have heard me what I have said to them, and they know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if I said is right? Why do you strike me? Anas then set him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man who Peter, who, whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord, and we are mindful that you've consecrated this day and to give honor to and glory to your Son. Of this, Lord, let us take into account what's being transpired, Lord, for our Lord and Savior took the habitation amongst his creation and realized the evil intent 
that has befell men because of their disobedience to you. May it be a monitor to us about how far our hearts can take us, but then also understand the cruelties of the world that an innocent man had taken. To which then, Lord, upon this, taking that sacrifice on our behalf without blemish, he was able to atone for the sins of his people, of which, Lord, today we are fully grateful and taking into account indeed why we are here. So then, Lord, with a childlike love and a willing mind, be with the congregation as they take in this word and be with thy servant as he feeds and teach your sheep. So in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, I did speak about the different iterations because at some point you may have noticed that there were some variances in regards to certain key words. Um, certain iterations would use, for example, that upon the officer striking Jesus, the ESV uses his hand. Some translation, especially in the Old English, would condone to a rod. Now, mind you, being slapped with a hand, as can compare to being slapped with a rod, feels differently. Just ask anybody to try it, and you will find out very clearly the pain and what it brings. But also, I want to bring to your attention breaks. Well, previously, when I was here, I spoke about how different versions of the Bible provide breaks in titles to give nuance to the reader. And I took today to take to the ESV, not saying it is better than all the others, but it provides good breaks. So that way, at least you're full aware as to what's transpiring here historically. Now, the four breaks I want to bring to your attention is also the same four breaks that will be brought within this sermon. Of the first, we note that Jesus faces Anas and Caiaphas. Within the next breaks, there are three in particular. We note how Peter denies Christ, but then also how Christ faces the questioning from the council. Nevertheless, is not going to change our mindset and approach to the way we're going to see this exposition, but it provides nice, clean segues. And that's important. You know, a lot of times people reading the Bible, taking into account what's being said, if you cannot make breaks, sometimes you may gloss over important details. Here today, we're going to highlight some of that. When Jason was here last, he provided some context that I hope you were able to take in. Uh, the way that John was transpiring the events in the garden, Jason did a very good job about showing how it's likened to what was transpiring with Adam in the garden in the beginning. In fact, I even tell you now, John Gill gives adage to this aspect. He states, and he states it well. As the first Adam, disobedience was committed in the garden. The second Adam, obedience to death for sin, begins here. As the sentence of death on account of sin was passed in the garden, it began to be executed in the garden. Now, if we take this same adage and seeing the master's obedience unto death and how we're coming from the garden and he transitions and steps further into the world. 
what we've now come to is the range of trial and discourses to which he takes towards that obedience. When we look closer, in fact, from what we've understand and believe, being Reformed Presbyterian, we understand the caveat to which the Master takes with his office as Christ the Mediator. And one of those caveats tells us he suffered the most painful sufferings in his body. And he endured the most grievous torments immediately to his soul. If you're finding out now, and after we read those verses, this is not the feel-good kind of sermon you may be looking for. It's amazing that in taking on the range of emotions he would have transpired, it also is a mirror unto us in our own frailties. Let's examine even further. In the Synoptic Gospels, upon Jesus' arrest in the garden, Mark 14, 43-50, Matthew 26, 47 through 56, Luke 22, 47 through 53, they each segue differently the master's path before appearing to the high priest and his council. In Matthew, the master immediately appears before the council. Mark dictates that upon Peter striking the guard's ear in the garden, a young man actually witnesses the event. And as the Roman cohorts led the master away, they, upon their trail, witnessed the young man along the way, and they grabbed him. But given his stature and physique, they are not allowed to contain him. And he escaped. Mark 14, 51 through 52. Luke depicts that as they held him in custody, without the word from him, they mocked him and beat him. And to add insult to their malice, because they knew of his reputation of prophesying, they blinded him. And as the blows continued, they jeered. Prophecy. Prophesy, actually. Who is it that struck you? Luke 22, verse 63. Here now in John, upon which they depart from the garden, we are told he is led to Anas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Commentaries have stated and they have all agreed. Anas was not mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, but the placement gives historical context to the readers and hearers. In context, Anas and Caiaphas, though related by marriage, had held the same title, high priest at one point and another. Luke 3 verse 2, Acts 4 verse 6. And in John inserting Caiaphas that he was a high priest that year, this implies that there was a change of the guard. And it was very likely that Anas pre preceded him. In fact, according to world history, the Romans, with Jerusalem under their auspice, with every sitting governor, bought the high priestly office. Virilius Gratus appointed Caiaphas and three individuals prior to Caiaphas, and upon the appointment, 
of Vatilius, Jonathan, the son of Anas, was appointed after Caiaphas. Now, it's kind of interesting. Caiaphas awaits in the council for the Messiah to be delivered to him. And Caiaphas is probably led to believe, like any Roman governor, people can be bribed to do his bidding. So in turn, he was expecting the same, as with the expectation of Judas delivering the Messiah. Matthew 26, 14 to 16, Mark 14, 10 through 11, Luke 22, 3 through 6. But what is it here that John is teaching us? And we saw it from the beginning while the master was in the garden. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus, goes into death willingly. When they responded and they, he brought the question, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. And upon three words being broached from his mouth, the men stumble in stupor. And yet the master acclaimed again, who is it that you seek? The reason why he does this is as the narrative explained, he had to protect his own, but then envisioned that as he's making those words, he's stepping further and further towards them. So that way the individuals, as the scripture stated, the individual that was of his care would not be lost. Upon which, being left alone, they arrest him and walk him accordingly. Here now then, if Caiaphas is expecting the master awaitment, just as John taught us in which the master went into death willingly, the whole ordeal, this whole aspect is controlled as in the hands of the Lord. You see, John brings up a very good adage as we're making a segue now to verse 14. Because Caiaphas was concerned about Jesus remaining alive. And his concern wasn't so much his impending stature as it would be. But the stature in what it involved was the popularity he gained. I mean, considered when we first get introduced to the high priest, what transpired? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So what then proceeds, or I'm sorry, what then comes, comes after this event? Many has to make note of it. People have to gossip. People have to tell of what venture, what sign of wonder transpired. So in John providing the adage to which he reminds us again of the high priest, he reminds us to go back into history. To which I bring you now to John 11 by verse 45 through 50. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had came had come with Mary and had seen what Christ had did, believed in him. But some, 
went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Note by verse 48, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. Now, by verse 53, I'll bring this to your attention. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Why do I bring that particular portion and clip them together? Because Caiaphas was under the guise and what he saw and what he did, he gave the money to Judas to bring what he needed. And upon which in delivering, he's waiting because he sought what he planted in his heart. But God has told us before, all things run by his hand. Nothing is outside of his purview. And if something were to transpire, it was because he dictated. Want me to bring you an analogy or something of history? How about the prophet Balaam? Did not God have him employed by the king? Balak of Moab. And what was his job duty? To curse Israel. But again, what transpires? He in turn, do not curse them. He blessed them. For the sake of time, I do not have enough to read the whole thing. But if you like, Numbers 23, 1 through 11. So coming here into the New Testament with Skyphus looking for the status quo. Being a high priest. Taking that vocation to which God had put him there. God required him to speak the truth. And boy, does John make a note of it. John 18 verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. But note the clarity John provided in John 11, which till 51 and 52 rings true. He did not say this of his own accord. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who scattered abroad. It's quite beautiful and clear to see how humanists partake to what they see in front of them cannot see the working of what's happening in the background, cannot pinpoint the reason to why they wake up that day. Cannot figure out as to the reasons why God has you in your vocation. Soon enough, it will show itself. Now, as we come to this particular portion within the narrative, uh, what it looks like 
seems to be some sort of a time lapse with the arrangement of Christ being delivered to the council and Peter's denial. But I'm going to tell you now, it is actually not. It's almost as if you're looking at it towards the movie and you're having the narrator narrate the scenes for you. So in this aspect, let us take to verses 15 and 16, which will allow us to segue to see the events unfold. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant girl. Some of you may see in your versions, you may have made, but spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, in the Synoptic Gospels, we are told all the disciples left him and fled. Mark 14, verse 50. Matthew 26, verse 56. Yet, we have yet another disciple that enters the court with him. There has been some contention throughout history as to regards who the disciple actually was. Some have thought it to be John the Beloved. But in context of which John writes this, he makes it a point that that disciple was known by the council and the high priest. So by process of elimination, that doesn't count. Now, not to be on a dead horse, I do not want to make it a point of emphasis as to the discover the identity of this uh, disciple, but I wanted to be make it a brooch. But it can be noted, if this individual, as John is notating, that was indeed a disciple of Christ, it probably, given where Christ was, would not be wise for him to speak his name for the fear of the council even having the officers arrest him. So, it's case in point. John makes us known that one of the followers loved him in secret, which I will broach a little bit later. But then also, it can be noted this identity can match to some individuals to which Christ may have spoken to. For example, we have Nicodemus, John 3, and also John 7, verses 50 through 51. Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew 27, verse 57 through 60. Mark 15, 42 to 46. Luke 23, 50 through 54. An individual to which took the care of the master's body upon which after the master's death on the cross, he seeks the pilot to take care of it. That and those individuals can all be possible as to who entered in. But nonetheless, the fact that a individual knew him and loved him in secret is a juxtaposition to someone who did love him in public. And that was Peter. That's an eye-opening comparison that we're having here. And what's interesting is that disciple that's not to be named. And the servant girl knew him because he knew the council. So he had to have come back many times 
Tell the servant girl, let Peter in. Well, 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 well. What's transpiring taking place? Let's handle this particular notion and portion of the narrative by taking it on a case and then on to the side-by-side -side scenario. Because what I feel that John is trying to emphasize is the second Adam taking that obedience on the death. And that's the theme that I do not want to take away from. But what's amazing and taking within that theme, we can also see and categorize the disciples versus the Messiah. Where the Messiah being the second Adam and doing everything right onto, onto obedience. And that obedience led to his death. We're going to see how it juxtaposes with the first Adam being that secret disciple and the public one being Peter. I'll give you some instance in just a moment here. With the secret disciple entering the court with the master, he hears of the questioning from the council. And certain gospels, Caiaphas actually speaks and makes known these questions. Luke twenty two sixty seven. If you are the Christ, tell us. Mark 14, 61, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? At different iterations upon these questionings, the master either remains silent. Matthew 26, verse 64, or he was pragmatic. Luke 22, verse 67, which he reads, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. They had individuals give false testimonies to justify that their proceeding was legal. And we've seen various notions of illegal proceedings from the Sanhedrin. Recall in John 8 when they brought him the adulterous woman. But then also notating that what he speaks because he lacked the additional individuals to testify what he was saying was true. He conveyed to them, oh, I know the law. And I do have someone who testifies what I'm saying is true. But you do not know him. Well, these individuals were found to be lying and inconsistent. Matthew 26, 60 through 61. Mark 14, 56 through 59. And upon their illegal proceeding, Matthew 26, verse 59, Mark 14, verse 55, they were left frustrated. And upon their frustration, they ripped their garments because they lacked traction in their case. So, one of the chief priests stands up and he states to Christ, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to them, you have said so, but I tell you 
From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 26, 63 to 67. Mark 14, 61 through 64. Luke 22, 67 through 71. But yet, what's interesting, throughout the Synoptic Gospels, we hear of no disciple entering in with the Master. Until now when we arrived in John. And he follows him into the court. And he was silent. Because there was no record of him defending him. In fact, it makes sense why John doesn't even name the disciple. The master speaks upon being questioned about his teaching. In John 18, as we return, he reiterates to the council, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. By verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Where is the disciple? Where is he mentioning that he's heard the teachings in a contest? Did that Nicodemus speak about having legal proceedings in John 7? Should not a man be heard? Where is the defense? Did this seeker disciple speak up? No, he did not. Rather, by verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. And with some iterations you have, it may be a rod saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Now, it is notable throughout the other synoptic gospels that once they render what he said to be blasphemy, they continue their mocking and their pillage of him. As I noted some time earlier, he made mention that he was blinded by the cohorts and he was beaten upon an ask of his reputation, who hit you? But then upon which they found no traction, they continued. Mark 14, 65, Matthew 26, 68. They covered his face, they struck him, they spit on him. And again, they said again, prophesy John and showing this comparison because the disciple in secret did not defend him in courts and those who tried to witness against him falsely were compelling the master has stated someone will come forward 
for surely they've heard my words and come and defend me. Well, how about one of his own? How about Peter? He was there and took to the master's words. I mean, was it not Peter who said in Luke twenty-two thirty-three, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Did he not also reiterate in Matthew 26, 33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And if I must die, I will die with you. I will not deny you. Mark 14, 29 and 31. Even in John. John 13, 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Hmm. Well, in some of the other gospels, when they hear of Peter's courage, they said, yes, I'm with you, Peter. Lord, we will not forsake you. But when the arrest came, in the garden, scripture states they all fled. Now, upon taking to Peter, and remember, Peter is falling under the aspect of the first Adam with the first, this, this, with the secret disciple here in this comparison with John. We're taking Peter at his word. So, what does the other disciple do? He notates to the servant girl, let him in. But what transpires when the servant girl is prompted to account to him? How do you know this guy? I think you were one of them. At the angst of hearing those words, seeing the master get clubbed, seeing the master get spit on, Seeing the master get struck, Peter freezes. And he states, I'm not with him. John 18, 16 through 17. Now the other gospels state Peter was accused of being with him in different iterations, Luke twenty two fifty six, this man also was with him. Matthew twenty six sixty nine, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. Mark fourteen sixty seven, you also were with the Nazarene. They called Jesus. But John shows here of Peter being from the first Adam. <laughs> Remember what you said. You would take. Your allegiance with the Christ, knowing that he's the son of God to death, you're no different from the first Adam. Because when accountability needs to be held, you shifted blame. Just like the first Adam did. Remember? God said, what have you done? What does Adam say? It's the wife that you gave me. He doesn't take the account. That's why I keep telling people they don't realize how much stress is brunt is made on a man. Because God looks at him first. 
So, making his first iteration, his first denial, the night draws cold. And taking to warmth, he finds a fire that others had made. It's kind of interesting to make this comparison with fire because the master is standing in front of various individuals. And given that he's already been pretty much uh, hit by a gang of people, I'm assuming he is also cold as well. But nonetheless, as he takes to warming himself up, the servant girl does not stop on her account. In fact, she calls others to draw that her account was correct. Mark 14, verse 69. She said to others, standing bystander, Yes, indeed, this man is one of them. In fact, <laughs> in Matthew 26, 71, another servant girl comes in and joins and bring her own group of bystanders. This man was with the Nazarene. In Luke 22, verse 58, a man actually comes forward after hearing the women speak, trying to confirm the testimony that they gave. You also are one of them. Note the comparison. With Peter, there's individuals giving accusations that are truthful. And rather than Peter confirming them, he lies. But upon the testimonies that were falsely given to the master, and being obedient and telling the truth, they were found out to be lies. The comparison is absolutely beautiful. So, Peter is bombarded. He looks to his left, he looks to his right, he looks forward, he looks backwards. Individuals stand at every corner. So, with an oath, Peter states, Matthew 26, 72, I do not know that man. With an oath, mind you. The second denial came with an oath. So, as the crowd is assembled, people who probably couldn't get a seat to witness the actual mock trial being held cast the attention of all the individuals crowded near the fire. Even to the point, one of the servants of the high priest, as we come now back to John, catches this. And he's not just one of the servants. He's a relative of the individual who had his ear cut off in the garden. So you know, for something dramatic to happen, and you were the person by the name, his name is Malchus, the fact that you had to tell this story, you had to tell this story and to tell people what you inspired. Surely someone recognizes this man. So he comes forward and he states, did I not see you in the garden with him? 
Now it's noted in the Synoptic Gospels. All the other ones did not make mention of Peter being the one that cuts the servant's ear off. But John makes that distinction that it was Peter. Why? Because again, he's showing the difference between the second Adam and that first one. The difference between Christ and us. And I tell you here, look at the evidence. Peter is being hit with the truth and lies. Christ has people give testimonies and they're proven false as he continues to portray the truth. So then, with Peter resorting to blind faith and boastful pride to bring about God's work, it's no difference that he had the angst and the want to cut that man's ear. I mean, growing up in Judaism, wasn't it told that a Messiah was going to come and deliver Israel out of bondage? And a certain feast that celebrated and commemorate different individuals who displayed courage, for example, the Maccabees, Peter is not outside of conscience of what he's been known to do and taught. But Peter, I tell you now, where's your sword? Where is your courage? Where is the courage that you said you had for the Messiah? That if he goes to prison, you'll go too. Huh. Just like his father, Adam, who blamed his wife when he had to take up the courage for his own fault, Peter doubles down the denial. And not only with the first one does he calmly state the lie, not only with the second one does he branch it with an oath. On this third one, he invokes a curse on himself. And he continues and swears, I do not know that man. Matthew 26, 74, Mark 14, 71. So the rooster crows, just as the master stated. Matthew 26, 75. John 18, 27. And at certain instances, it actually crowed twice. Mark 14, verse 72. But what is the most telling of all the accounts is what transpired with Luke. An hour had passed between the first denial, I'm sorry, between the second denial and the third denial. So Peter had time to dwell on what the master had told him before. You're going to deny me three times. And upon which, on that third denial, the rooster crows, Peter makes eye contact with the master. Luke narrates, 
And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And by verse 61 here, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. What can we take from these adages today? Given that the master showed that no matter the circumstance, he continued to obey God. That's the point that's being drawn to us now. Everybody has different circumstances in this room. There's no question about it. But what's eye-opening is all those circumstances are bought by the hand of God. And it's a work on your faith, not the faith of the individual sitting next to you. That's the harsh reality of the situation. When faced with that, we can think of two things. We can think, well, what will get me out of this situation or what would appease me? Or number two, case in point, what's the ramifications of what I say? And when we look at the juxtaposition between Christ being the individual who obeys God and Peter who claimed that he obeyed God, John's comparison rungs true. Hold on to that thinking until the rubber meets the road. And then when it does come that point in time, are you still thinking and saying what you believed? So for us today, considering that this is a narrative, let us take in this aspect and this example to which Christ is showing. If people are falsely accusing you and you know the truth, the truth will reveal itself in time and they will be proven to be false. But if people are conveying the truth and asking you to account to the truth, even if it costs, costs your life, what does the law of God say? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Peter was not exasperated from that point, and neither are we. When Pastor Jason returns, we will then look at the different aspect as regards to the master and his doing with Pilate. <clears throat> because I didn't get a chance to touch on verse 23 to 24. Because the aspect of the strike, as the master actually answers for it, speaks on his humanity. Because he stated, if I did do something wrong, then, then have the law attest for it. But if I didn't do something wrong, why did you strike me? This is going to ring true. 
and ring more and clear, especially given the aspect of when Pilate speaks with the Master. Let's now go to the Lord our God in prayer.